How many of you, uh, like me, still have like this reoccurring dream that um, you're back in school, or maybe you're already in school, I don't know, but you're back in school, you walk into the classroom, and everybody's just about ready to take a test that you are completely unaware of and therefore unprepared for, right? And you're like thinking, did I not get the memo, right? And so, it's, or, or even worse, like, you know, you walk in and the teacher's like, all right, everybody put your books away to pen out and it's time for a pop quiz. And you're thinking, if you're a teacher here, that's really not nice. We don't like that. None of us like that. You didn't like it when you were in school. And, uh, but there's nothing worse than that feeling like you need to produce something at a time that you're not necessarily ready to produce it. You don't feel prepared to produce it because that's really what a test is, right? It's an opportunity to kind of show the goods. It's an opportunity to take that which you have learned and prove that you've learned it or, or not, depending on how you did on the test. Well, it's one thing to go through the academic test that many of us have had to, or you may be in school or college, continue to go through, but it's, a, it's another thing altogether when you're introduced to the surprise testings of life, right? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. We'll begin today. We'll complete it uh, next week. But the title, of my, the title of my message is The Target of Testing. The Target of Testing. Because there's a, there's a goal. There's, there's, a, there's a target. There's a, there's a purpose behind the tests that God allows you to go through, and, and here's a spoiler alert, I'm gonna give it to you right, right up front. The target is you and me. It's your sanctification. It's your maturity. It's your opportunity to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ because ultimately that's why we're here on this earth, right? To reflect the character of Christ to the world around us to say no to our flesh, to say no to our old, old ways, and to let the, the character of Christ, the influence, the sanctification of the Spirit of God to be worked through our life in such a way that you and I have the opportunity to be Jesus to the world around us, to allow the, the, the character of Christ to flow out of our life and to be Jesus to the world around us. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. One of the most critically important things that we can embrace when we understand those times of testing that we find ourselves in, it's that not coming from a distant God who is trying to get back at us, that is angry at us, or just gets his kicks out of watching his children struggle. You are the target of testing because you are the object of of God's love. We showed the first season of The Truth Project this past Wednesday night. It was, a, it was a great night. It was a wonderful informational time, a wonderful equipping 
time. If you've missed that, you're welcome to join with us this upcoming week. I really would encourage you uh, to consider that. But, but Del Tackett ended his session with a, a very thought-provoking question. He said this, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? I'll say that again because I know it's not noon yet. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? What we profess is gonna be made manifest by our actions. The only truth we really believe is the truth we obey, right? I mean, we can say whatever we want and it sounds real good, but the only truth we really believe is the truth that we obey. So how do we know that what we profess we believe is truly what we believe? Testing. Testing is an opportunity to show if we got the goods or not. Testing is something that God introduces into our life as a proving ground, as an opportunity for you and I to continue to grow. Now, here's the important piece. Testing is not to show God where we're at. God already knows. He is omniscient. It means that God knows everything that there is to know. God knows everything that is to be known. God does not learn. He always knows everything that there is to be known. So testing isn't to inform God. Testing is to inform us. It's a metric by which we can determine where are we at in our maturity, in our walk with God. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. And when we understand that every test that we go through, whether we like them or not, and we don't, right? I mean, likes tests, and nobody likes tests, right? You like a test when you know you're gonna nail it, right? Those are the, those are the best tests, but, but those surprise tests, right? We, 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 we would prefer not to have to walk down that, that journey of life, right? But, but we, it's really important that we understand that any test that God allows us to go through is coming from a benevolent God who loves us and has our best interest in mind and his glory in mind. And when we understand that, we can see that test not as something that God is doing to us, but as something that God is doing for us. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. Here's a couple of examples of when God, there's a couple of examples that God used and and tested his people with to show them what was in their own heart. We're gonna take some time uh, this week and next week and, and look at some various moments in the lives of some people in the scripture that God brought them through seasons of testing, different kinds of testings, not again so that God would be informed, but so that they would know what was in their heart and that the result of that test would strengthen and affirm their faith. The first one I want to take a look at this morning is the test of trust. The test of trust. 
And when I think about this idea of trust, the, the first blaring example that, I, that comes to my mind, obviously, is Abraham, right? And all the things that Abraham had to endure. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that Abraham is called by God. Uh, he, is to, he is to leave his country, right? He is to go to a new land. And then this is a new land that God was going to give to them. It is in this place that God's people were gonna prosper. They're gonna be blessed. And Abraham was the one who's gonna kind of charge the way. We read in Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, not great in the sense that people go, oh, Abraham, you're great. No, it, mean, it speaks of the breadth of his life, the breadth of his influence. Your name will be impacting. It will be influential. It will be made great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, Abram. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, what a moment of, that must have been for Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham a little bit later in Genesis chapter 15 that although his wife Sarai at the time, which God will change her name to Sarah, and we have got Abram at this point who God will change his name to Abraham, although the two of them were childless at this point, God says that through them, through this childless couple, their offspring was going to come forth and a nation from them would emerge and it would be a great and numerous nation. He says in Genesis chapter 15, you got, God says, and, he, and it says, and he brought him, uh, Abram, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. You gotta remember, at this point, there is no light pollution, right? There wasn't like it was Manhattan where you really couldn't see the stars because of all of the, the light pollution. But man, they are in the middle of the desert, middle of the nowhere, right? Have you ever been somewhere where it's so dark, you can't see the hand in front of you, but you look up and the stars, it, 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 it is amazing to see just the, the, the handiwork of God in the display of the heavens, right? And it's at this moment that God brings Abraham outside and says to him, Abraham, look up, look and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, he says, so shall your descendants be. Wow. Abraham, I know you don't have any children right now, but let me, let me rock your world. Let me build your faith. Come on outside. You see those stars? If you can count them, that's how many descendants you're gonna have, be, you're gonna be, you're gonna have. And look at verse six, very critical. He says, look, and he says, and Abram, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. Yeah, I'm sure he did, right? It was like, oh, I'm all for that, Lord. I believe you in here. But you see, time went on. And Abraham and Sarah remained childless. They waited for God to fulfill his promise. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, months turned into years, and years turned into decades. And God did not fulfill this promise. 
And this man that we see in verse six that says, this man who believed God, determined that, that maybe, it's been a long time, maybe God needs a little help. God's not walking according to the timeline that I have, and so maybe, just maybe, I need to initiate this process, right? And with the permission of his wife, he lies with Hagar, the servant of his wife, and has a child with her. And Ishmael is born, and we still struggle as a result of that today. This man who believed God determined that God needed a little help, a little support, a little encouragement. But that wasn't the promise that God made. And what he believed that day on that starry night was brought into question by him jumping in and adding to the narrative himself. And Sarai still hadn't Conceived. More months, more years, more decades go by, and now, and now they're old. I mean, like really old. I won't dare to put a number on that. But they are way past childbearing years. I mean, romance was not in the air, right, for Abram and Sarah. But one day God calls upon Abraham, who at this time, Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is, is 90 years old, and God reminds him of the promise that he made to him. And at the ripe old age of 90, for Sarah and 100 for Abraham, God reminds them of this promise that he's going to fulfill his promise through Sarah. God doesn't, can I tell you, God doesn't change his mind. It's not like God moves from plan A to plan B. Plan A was Sarah all along. And God reminds Abraham that he was going to fulfill the promise, right? Look, I love, I love look at Genesis chapter 17 and, and verse 16, God speaking of Sarah says, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Could you imagine? I mean, I'm sure Abraham's thinking, she's, she's 90 years old. Like, have you seen the potential here? I mean, Lord, are you sure this is what's going on here? and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And then look at verse 17, I love this. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. God, you've got to be kidding me. She's 90 years old, I'm 100 years old. Here we are decades after this promise. Hey, God, let's, let's change gears a little bit. But no, God says, I do not change, right? I've made a plan, this is the direction we're going. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old and to a wife who's 90? Interesting, we, as I said before, we learned that Abraham trusted God 
when this was originally promised. But as time went on, and, and God's timetable didn't line up with Abraham's timetable, what he believed was revealed that he didn't really believe it to the full extent. And so he needed to go to Hagar to fulfill what he believed was the promise of God. God was faithful though. At the ripe old age of 90, Sarah conceives and bears a son And ironically, they named this child Isaac, which means laughter. How appropriate for this one who fell on his face and laughed. And now Abraham has a son, but so much more than a son. This is the fulfillment of a promise. This is a fulfillment of that conversation that God had with him decades earlier. Isaac represented Abraham's destiny. Isaac represented all that God was going to do through the people of God. Isaac was the fulfillment of a promise, a son of promise. And I'm sure after Isaac was born, Abraham being a man just like you and I, I'm sure he must have thought at some point, man, I really blew it. Why did I go to Hagar? Why didn't I just believe God? Why didn't I just trust God? I mean, how could he not feel that way, right? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, man, when when you drop the ball, you'd like to say, God, forgive me, I'll never do it again, but God, I don't know if I'll ever do it again. I, I might. You start to doubt what's what you're capable of, you start to see your failures and you think, well, maybe that's gonna be the the narrative of my life. I'm sure Abraham was probably, because here's the deal, Abraham had a tremendous call upon his life. And I'm sure at some point Abraham was wondering, do I have the goods to accomplish that which God is calling me to do? I don't even know what's in my heart. Yeah, but I'm gonna show you what's in your heart, Abraham. And God brings Abraham through another test. It's years later. Isaac is is growing. He's the apple of his father's eye. The fulfillment of a promise that through him, Abraham's offspring would fill the land. And then that day came that so many of you are aware of. Genesis chapter 22 and verse one. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to the one on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Could you imagine what was going on in the mind of Abraham? Isaac, go and get your son. He's probably thinking, wait a minute, but let me go get Ishmael. 
No, 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 your only son, the son of promise, the one that you're putting all of your hopes in, the one you're putting all of your dreams in, the one that you are seeing through the lens of your destiny. Go get that one, Isaac, and put him on the altar and offer him to me as a burnt offering. The image that we oftentimes have of this scene is of Abraham, right, walking up the mountain with his little boy and they're heading up and you're kind of wondering like what in the world is going on through the mind of, I, of Abraham and Isaac at this point. The scripture does not uh, tell us the age of Isaac and so oftentimes we just kind of assume he's this little boy, but you know what? The reality is time has gone by. He is no longer a little boy. In fact, he's a young man. Do you know that rabbinical scholars put the age of Isaac at the age of 37? Yeah. Some scholars place it anywhere between 18 and 37. What we do know is that Isaac was somewhere in that gap, but he was not this little boy, which only adds to the, the narrative that much more. You kind of really appreciate Isaac. Here he is, a young man, still submitting to his father. Listen up, sons. Right? And they trek up the mountain to go and do what is unthinkable to you and I. And Isaac says to his father, my father, and he said, yes, son, I'm here. <laughs> Behold the fire, and here's the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? What are we sacrificing? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Some renderings of that Hebrew interpretation is that God will provide for himself or as himself the lamb. And so they went, both of them together. Wow. And when, when they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son. <laughs> I kind of wonder what's going on through mind, the mind of Isaac. Like, hey, whoa, wait a second, right? There's parts of this that we don't know, but I can't imagine that Isaac wasn't starting to put it together, right? Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, a full reading of this story, which we didn't have time for this morning, would reveal that Abraham knew all along that Isaac was gonna come back with him. When Abraham revealed to his servants, and he said, he said, the boy and I are going up to sacrifice and we will come back to you. Abraham at this point was convinced that, that God was going to fulfill his promise through this young man. He had no idea how it was going to play out, but one thing he did know is he wasn't going to add to the narrative like he did so many years ago with Hagar. And God, I don't know if you're going to raise him from the dead. I have no idea, but if this is what you've told me to do, I trust you. And here he is ready to bring the knife down upon his son, his only son, upon his hopes, his dreams, his future. It's all right there on the altar and the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, 
Abraham. And he said, here I am. What it doesn't say is, I was waiting for somebody to step up, <laughs> right? Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham had no idea fully what was in his heart until that point. But one thing Abraham walked out of there was with the knowledge that his love for God was greater than his love for his son, his destiny, his, his, his family line. His love for God was greater and his trust in God was greater. And if I was able to lay it all on the line here, no matter what comes my way in these next number of years, I recognize that I won't fall like I did with Hagar the first time. This time, my trust will be in God. How do I know that? Because I passed the test. Because I passed the test. What did God learn? Nothing. God knew what was in the heart of Abraham. But Abraham passed the test. Now I say, wait a minute, but doesn't it say that the angel of the Lord said, now I know that wasn't necessarily God. The angel who was the spectator in all this had come to the realization, wow, now I know you love God more. Now I know what God knew all along. I'm sure the angels are blown away oftentimes by the way in which God interacts with his people. Hebrews, I think it is, it talks about how the angels long to see this redemption that we as the church have been recipients of. Wow. And so God didn't learn anything, but Abraham passed the test and learned that his trust in God and love for God was greater than even the love for his own son. And that awareness catapulted his faith. What are some of the ways in which God has tested you to show you whether you really trust him? You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. And you know what? There are times that we just don't know what's in our heart. We don't know what we're capable of. And so God, in his love, in his commitment, what does the scripture say? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He that began a good work in us, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. How will he complete it? He will bring tests into our life that will fortify our faith. What are some ways in which God's testing has revealed to you whether you really trust him? Oftentimes I say the longest journey ever is from our head to our heart because we believe with our head but we trust with our heart. We oftentimes say, I believe. But do we trust? Trust is belief on steroids. Belief says, I know God can. Trust says, I'm going to take my hands off and not fill in the gaps that I don't understand and trust that he will. And that's what Abraham learned. And that's what we learn when we go through seasons of testing. Maybe God has brought you through a season of grieving where you've said, Lord, if this ever happens, there's no way I'll ever make it in life. And there you are, you find yourself in that place of grieving. 
only to show that he is that ever-present help in times of trouble, that he, he, he carries you through those difficult times. David said, I've been young and now I am old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He binds up the brokenhearted. Maybe he's brought you through a season of sickness and, and you think, well, you know, I was really good at telling everybody else, don't worry, the Lord is your healer. God will come with you and, and he will be with you. But now here I am finding myself in the midst of a season and now my belief is needing to be put in motion as trust and God, I'm really struggling in this area. Will you help me to trust you? Or maybe it's a season of financial hardship where you look and say, I, I, I don't know how in the world I'm ever gonna get through this season. And, and God, I, I trust you, I, I believe, but you, I, I don't know where the money's gonna come from. How am I gonna pay the bills and all the things that are going on? And God says, let me, let me bring you through a season and to show you that I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the Lord, your provider. I am the one who will come in and meet your needs. Your paycheck never came from a company anyway. It's always been the provision of the Lord. Maybe you're walking through something like that right now. Let the testing of your faith teach you a little something about what's in your heart so that what comes out, and I've had that. I've had moments where things have shook me to my core, where I was scared and fearful. And I thought, God, I've helped so many people through this. I've encouraged so many people through. I've, I've preached messages on this, but what is this fear that is starting to control? And God's saying, I'm bringing you through this season. I'm letting you see it so that we can get it out of you and you can continue to grow. Why? Because he loves me and he loves you and he doesn't want you to be paralyzed by those things that hold you back. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. The test of trust. Secondly, look at the, the test of endurance. The test of endurance. James provides for us what our attitude ought to be when confronted with a test, he writes about this in the epistle that bears his name, James chapter one and verse one. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I just want to say, I love the picture that we get right there. It's kind of the picture of a person on a journey and they meet a trial. Like you didn't want to meet the trial, right? You ever meet someone you don't want to meet? You don't have to answer that question, but, but there's times you, you run into people and you're like, I really wish I didn't run into that person. Well, that's kind of the picture that we get here from James. He says here, look, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You didn't plan for it, you didn't look for it, you don't even want it, but you met this trial of various kinds. But he says, look, count it all joy. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, perfect, 
proper word there is mature. We'll never be perfect on this side of eternity. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. If you read the New King James Version, the word there is interpreted patience. That the testing of your faith produces patience. But this is not patience in the sense of the kind of patience you need to extend to somebody who's 15 minutes late for dinner. Right? It's not the idea of that kind of a patience that he's referring to. This, it's more this idea of steadfast endurance. The ability to, to develop the, the kind of tenacity that is necessary to navigate the, through the, 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 the course of life with a, with, a, with a focus that is immovable. Steadfast endurance is the result of testing. Testing is the tool that results in the ability to steadfastly endure in your faith as you navigate the challenges of life. Testing is not something we necessarily need or ought to avoid or run from, but we need to see testing as a tool that will result in the ability to steadfastly endure in my faith as I navigate the challenges of life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And can I tell you, the audience to whom James is writing these words to found themselves in a season of serious trial. These were not people who were just merely inconvenienced. Notice how James opens and addresses this audience to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If you're reading the New King James Version, a proper, in my opinion, in this case, a proper interpretation is to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. To the 12 tribes who are scattered. You see, the church was scattered because the hammer of persecution had come upon the church. They were standing up for Jesus, they were standing up for their faith, and the, and, the, and the persecution was coming upon the church, and they ended up having to scatter, running from their lives, the men, the women, the children, they are going everywhere, scattered, bringing with them, though, the very gospel of Jesus Christ, what a tool that persecution was in the hands of God because it got the people out of their comfort zones and out into the, all the world and they brought the gospel with them. God uses all things. But you see, the church was scattered. This was a horrible, historic time for the church and it forced people to scatter for their safety, much much like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan in other areas of the Middle East where they're seeking out Christians to persecute and kill them for their faith and they're having to scatter for their lives. We need to keep them, our brothers and sisters, in prayer. Amen? And note the instruct from James to this people who are scattered abroad. 
these people who are on the run, these people who are scared, these people whose tomorrow is not promised, whose lives are unpredictable. Here comes the instruct from James, count it all joy. Done people like that, you just want to slap them upside the head. Can we get real for a minute? There's nothing worse when you're in the midst of a season that you wish you were not going through and someone just throws out this arbitrary like, you know, hey, don't worry about it, you'll be okay. You think I'm dying over here. It's all you got. But see, this is the wrong perspective. The right perspective is James's perspective. And what James says is, listen, when you find yourself meeting with various trials, count it all joy. Why? Because the thing that you're going through is producing something in you. It's producing a steadfast endurance. And therefore, he says, count it all joy. He says this because their joy was not in what they were currently seeing. It was what, their joy was to be in what was being produced inside of them as a result of the testing of their faith. For you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. Testing produces Something. It is not just some arbitrary test that God sends you through. My kids had to take, and some of yours did too, you had to take those tests that they don't even get the scores back on. Like, what, what a waste of time, right? At least tell me I failed. I, I'm fine with that. Give me a grade here, right? They had to go to school and take these long, lengthy tests, and some of you guys had to take those tests, and I'm so sorry. But, but that's not the kind of testing God brings us through. God brings us through testing because there's a purpose. It's producing something. Hardship, it produces something in us. Trials, they produce something in us. It produces endurance. And endurance produces spiritual maturity. And that will carry you through the rest of your life and on into eternity. That endurance is what will manifest itself as spiritual maturity so that no matter what comes your way, you are grounded in the faith. Ready to go. Testing produces something that will outlast the temporary testing of your faith. And it's something that will carry you across to the finish line in your journey of faith. And therefore, James says, count it all joy. And sometimes it's really hard. I mean, if we got real honest and said, you know what, I, I, yeah, that sounds really good, but when I'm in the storm, that's really hard to get honest and to say, I just, I just trust you. I was reading in Mark chapter nine about the dad that came to Jesus about his son. His son was demon-possessed, and oftentimes this boy, and I think it's Mark chapter nine, this boy was, 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 was convulsing on the ground and throwing himself into the fire, and, 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 and this person said, came to Jesus and said, I've gone to you disciples, but they weren't able to do anything. And so Jesus says, all things are possible if you believe. And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Wow, what a profound statement. I can identify with that guy. 
I want to believe, but it hasn't fully transferred from here to here. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How does God help our unbelief? He carries us through the test. He brings things into our life. And as we are walking through, leaning on the Holy Spirit, trusting God, what that does is it creates in us a steadfast endurance so that our belief trickles on down to our heart and manifests itself as trust. The test of endurance. How do you know whether you have the goods to endure a challenging season of faith? You ever wonder that? Like you think, man, I, I hope I make it on over to the other side. You read about stories that other people have gone through and, and then those, those moments of real honesty, you think to yourself, I don't know if I've got the goods to be that faithful, to be that committed, to be that persistent, to be that steadfast. How in the world am I possibly ever gonna get there? Testing. God doesn't just bring us there. It's all these seasons of life that sometimes take place in the arena of calm that prepares us for the storm that's later on. And it's in those seasons that God carries us and proves to us that he's faithful. And can I tell you, I believe the church is being tested right now. The church of Jesus Christ is being tested right now. Will we get so caught up and distracted by all of the chaos around us that we fail to see God at work in our lives and in the world around us, this world that we're called to be lights to? There is so much division. There's so many narratives. There's so, many, there's so much hate. There's so much talking points that the church needs to be very laser focused and saying, you know what, God, I don't know what's true. I don't want to know what's, what, what, what is or isn't true, but my eyes are fixed on you. I trust you. And whatever's going on around me, I'm going to lean heavily upon you and I'm going to be a light to this world. This is the test that the church has right now. We need to be careful that we're, listen, we need to be careful that we're dying on the right hills. And we don't die on the hill of this world. We die on the hill of truth. We die on the hill of the kingdom of God. We die on the hill of the main purpose for which we live. And that's to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And any hyper energy that's spent anywhere else is a distraction from what God has called us to do. This is the test that the church has. How, what if, God forbid, what if the church had to endure in America but the churches in Afghanistan are having to endure? How will we respond? I don't know but I know that God is bringing us through various other tests that maybe, just maybe, he is preparing us for something. Somebody said, Pastor, is this it? Is this the end? I don't know. But I will focus my attention on being attentive to where God has me. I will focus on the things that God has called me to do I believe before the tribulation comes upon the church, the church will be raptured out of here because the tribulation is God's wrath 
on the earth and as in Christ we have sidestepped the wrath of God, I'm thankful for that. But there's a lot of other things going on in the world right now amongst our brothers and sisters that are suffering in ways that you and I have never had to suffer and I pray never will have to suffer. But the ability to carry through and work and navigate through that time is gonna be seen in our ability to work through this testing of faith, of endurance, that God does in our lives to equip us for whatever is ahead. You are the target of testing because you are the object of God's love. The test of trust, the test of endurance, and I ran out of time, so next week we'll pick up on the, the test of faith. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you equip us and you prepare us and you sanctify us according to your word. I pray, Lord, that in this hour we would respond appropriately, whether we're going through individual trials or corporate trials or whatever tests that we may be going through, may we keep our eyes fixed on you. May we endure this season and come out the other side loving you more, trusting you more and more fixed in our faith, steadfast endurance until we cross on over the finished line to the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.